I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Ray, welcome. Ray Estefania of the RNA Therapeutic Partners Group. So, Ray, for starts, tell us a little bit about your work and your partner, Anna Moreno, and what you guys are to. Well, thanks, Eric. I appreciate you having me here this uh, wonderful Saturday morning. Um, so, RNA Therapeutic Partners is basically a intervention and therapeutic consulting practice. Um, Anna Moreno and I started um, RNA about three years ago after we sold our previous program. We had an outpatient addiction treatment program called Family Recovery Specialists. And Anna and I got out of the treatment sort of um, phase of what we do, and we started RNA Therapeutic Partners. Anna and I have been working together for over 15 years. You know, we started together at uh, South Miami Hospital in the addiction treatment center there. And so we started RNA because we really wanted to take our many years of experience in working in treatment programs and working with families and really focus on how do we help families? How do we move them through a process of trying to help someone they may be concerned about? We really wanted to create a very um, concierge level consulting practice where we work with really a wide variety of issues. We certainly focus on addiction and recovery, but we work with a lot of different mental health issues. And while we're both clinicians and we certainly do psychotherapy, I'd say our focus is more on the consulting side of things where we're really sort of acting as a guide for families, helping them kind of understand what resources are out there and walking through the process with them to, I think, really help families avoid making a lot of the mistakes that they often make when they don't know how to navigate this very complex addiction and mental health treatment landscape. And we kind of help them figure out um, where do we need to go? What are we trying to do? How do we get there? It is a landscape. And oftentimes what works and what we need to do is counterintuitive. It's true. Different than what we might think we need to do. That's right. And, and often by the time a family reaches us, they've tried so many different things, right? It's usually not their first rodeo and they've been at this trying to help a loved one and, and, and they've done some things right. And they've certainly made some mistakes as any of us would. Um, and they don't know what to do, right? They've kind of, they've kind of reached the limit of what they can do with their own resources. And that's where we come in and kind of help them think out of the box a little bit. We're essentially problem solvers for families, right? We want to see what's worked, what hasn't worked, and help that family create a plan and walk them through the process of hopefully getting to the place where they can start to recover. You know, um, again, whether that's an addiction issue, a mental health issue, an adolescent with a behavioral disorder or a learning issue or any of those kinds of things that um, we have experience with. I remember some years back, you and I co-presented at a in-service, and you, you were talking about the Arise model, and I remember something that you said. It always kind of stayed with me, and actually, I, I practiced this, but you had said, when you're working with families and you have a client that's resistant, maybe someone who will not show up to a meeting, that's okay. You don't have to come. We're just going to go, and we're going to talk about your problem right? And we're going to be talking about your problem and you could come or not come, but it doesn't matter because we're going to be talking about that issue anyway. And I want to tell you, I remember you saying that I've done that since with all kinds of family situations 
and it 100% works. And somewhere along the way, that person becomes engaged in the discussion. They show up to some kind of meeting at some point when they know people are there talking about their their issue. They want to be part of that conversation. That's right. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, who would want to have their family meeting and talking on a regular basis about them and whatever concerns the family has and not want to be part of that conversation? So instead of confronting their resistance or their fear or their apprehension or whatever it is, we roll with it. Right. And we basically say, look, we'd love to have you join us. We want to we want to have a conversation Um, more often than not. They they want to be a part of that conversation. Sometimes they refuse at first, but eventually, like you said, they tend to come around. And that's been our experience. Um, and and my training in Arise, I, I trained with with Judith Landau, one of the fa- founders of Arise. Um, my partner Anna is actually a trainer for Arise, so she has actually a lot more training than I do in Arise. But we've learned that um, that in Invitational, that more transparent approach really works better for most people. They appreciate it. They're more likely to engage in it. They don't feel attacked. They feel like it's a, a collaboration, a conversation, and it just has a way of lowering defensiveness and allowing us to start to have some productive conversation around what the issue is and how we may be able to help. And and so it really does work. I mean, if you think about it, um, I always tell families and, and nine times out of 10, the families will say, oh, no, He's not going to come to this. No way is he going to, you know, accept our invitation. And like you said, nine times out of 10, they do. It seems to me that the science of interventions, the methodology of it, it evolves over time, right? It starts off as one thing, the Johnson model that we're more familiar with, like you said, kind of with the surprise party. And now it evolves into something else as all of behavioral health does. And it seems as though the ARISE model is more aligned with things that are more current, like harm reduction, motivational interviewing, the invitational style that you described. Yes. So could you talk a little bit about how ARISE model maybe contrasts from more of the traditional Johnson model of interventions. Yeah, so if you think of the the original, the Johnson model, right, and other models that have come after, it's more about... Um, a family is getting together and they're kind of talking and they're often doing this behind the, the person's back, right? The person they're concerned about and they're, they're coming up with a plan and then ultimately they're going to sit down and, and quote unquote confront the person, right? It was a little more confrontational than what we tend to utilize now. It was a surprise. So the person really had no idea what was happening. And then one day you would either show up at their home or you would invite them into the office. And, and it had a tendency for the person to feel attacked, to feel judged, to feel betrayed, to feel like, um, you know, all of this stuff was going on behind their back. Um, the arise model in contrast to that is really more about a collaboration. It's more about being transparent. It's really about trying to engage the person from, from the beginning, from, from the get go. We're going to really try to invite the person into our process. It's a process, right? It's a process that includes the whole family and it really engages everyone in, um, an opportunity to, to really have some honest conversation and, and to and to really move together as a family th- through that process. And so now listen, um, we still utilize a, a more of a surprise model and and there's great intervention approaches out there um, that that still utilize a version of a surprise model, but I think it's become less confrontational. It's become more more compassionate. It's you know it's evolved like like you said, just like treatment has evolved since I got into this field, you know, almost 30 years ago, treatment has evolved. Um, well, intervention has evolved as well. And so there are still opportunities where we 
for a lot of different reasons, we may think that a, a surprise model um, is, is going to be more effective. But whenever possible, we really want to try to engage someone in a more invitational approach because we just find that that, that works better. You know, um, I, you and I were talking earlier about how COVID has changed a lot of the way we do therapy, right? COVID has also changed the way we approach interventions and, and how we help someone. I mean, for a long time, we couldn't leave our homes. We couldn't do face-to-face meetings with people. We So we had to adapt. And actually, the ARISE model for us worked really well in adapting the way we move through an intervention process with the family, we were able to do it completely virtually. And so we were able to take our skills and our experience and adapt it to a virtual model where we would sit down with a family online. We would never meet anyone face to face. And we've actually been really successful at, at, you know, having people accept help and, and, and receive treatment through that kind of approach, which has been amazing. So, when you think about the Arise model and the evolution of that and the success that you're having and that you guys are so well known for doing these kind of interventions with COVID and the evolution of how we're delivering services, what are you guys seeing that's changed as far as the kinds of problems that people are having and things that people are coming to you to help resolve? I think it's it's probably um, the nature of the problems is similar to what we've always dealt with. We're just seeing so much more of it. We're seeing so many individuals, so many families, so many teenagers, college age kids that have been completely stressed out. You know, because of COVID, we're seeing people who are depressed, who are anxious, whose lives have been turned upside down, who unfortunately, because of COVID, haven't had maybe some of the same outlets that they had previously to deal with how they were feeling. We've just seen so many people that are in crisis and needing mental health services. Um, that it's just, I mean, I think that we've, um, actually been as busy or busier than, than we've ever been in the last year and a half. And, and I just think it's magnified the, the, the problem that, that's been there for a long time. People are suffering and they've been suffering for a long time with this virus. And I think they unfortunately have been, many of them, locked up at home, some not working, some not being able to meet their financial responsibilities. We work with a lot of college students, high school students who have had to go to school virtually, haven't been able to be on campus, are at home with their parents when they should be, you know, individuating and 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 learning how to be on their own, and it's created a lot of stress for everybody, and it's just led to people resorting to some really unhealthy coping mechanisms like drugs and alcohol, like, you know, other things, you know, just isolating and, um, and, and, and utilizing, um, uh, skills that are harmful to them in the long run. It's the same. People ask me a lot about private practice. They say, what are you seeing? And what do you notice? What's different about people now during COVID? And my answer is sort of similar to yours. It's kind of like whatever you had going on, before the pandemic started, if you were a person who struggled with anger issues, if you were a depressed person, if you were an isolated person, if you were an anxious person, if you were a substance abuser, whatever it is, it's worse now. That's right. Exacerbates whatever's going on and leans us into our most maladaptive coping skills. That's right. You see it across the board. And we see those statistics all the time, right? More people are depressed. More people are attempting and committing suicide. More people are drinking alcohol to to deal with um, whatever they're feeling around the pandemic, resorting to drugs and alcohol. It's just, you know, as you said, the problems were there before, but they've been magnified and they've, um, and the people don't have, like I said, the same outlets that they may have had before to deal with this stuff. 
So it's changed everything, right? It's changed the way we deliver therapy. And, and I honestly think that a lot of the things that have changed are probably going to stick around a long time. You think about teletherapy, you know, virtual therapy. I mean, that was something that professionals did before, but not to the level they're doing now. And I'm seeing all kinds of different people uh, right now developing um, services that are virtually based. And I think that's here to stay. I, I really do. I don't think it replaces the face-to-face in-office interaction, but I think it's it's going to be a um, something that we're all going to utilize to complement some of the other things that we do. Seems so. Uh, we were talking before about the populations of people that you're working with. You were the director of South Miami Hospital's adolescent unit for a period of time. And it sounds like that's where you really developed a lot of that skill building of working with uh, that population. And I have to imagine in a big city like Miami with a very diverse population of people, challenging environment to serve adolescent substance use disordered uh, sure. children and their families. Sure. sure, you learned a lot doing that. I did. I actually started my career in the D.C. area. I, I worked um, in a, um, a hospital-based program there, a place called Suburban Hospital. But I came back to Miami in, um, I think it was 99, and I started working at South Miami Hospital. I started there as a counselor and um, and eventually worked my way up until, like you said, I was running the, the adolescent and the young adult program. And, um, and it was a great experience. I, I've had wonderful training, right, in, in some really quality programs and, and really learned how to deliver um, high-quality, comprehensive, ethical care. And, um, and South Miami Hospital was another place that I, I guess I really honed my skills and focused a lot on working with teens and young adults and their families, and so we really involve the families in that process pretty heavily. And, and it's kind of taken me to, to where I am now in my work with families, right? Because so much of my career was centered around working with young people, whether they be young adults or even teens, you really had to work with the families. I mean, how could you not, right? How, how could you not work with the family of a 16 or 17-year-old person? But what I've learned through that process is whether you're 16 or 20 or 25 or 30 or 40, the family is so important to engage in the treatment process. And, and I've learned that. And it's been, um, it, it's been just that, that example for me has been reinforced over and over. And as an interventionist, um, that's that's worked in programs, right? I have an advantage, I think, because I've been on the other side. I know what it is to run a program. I know what it is to provide direct service. And I, I'm, I'm disappointed a lot in programs when I see not enough attention being paid to the family. You know, I see a 24-year-old young adult college student, let's say, go to treatment and often the attitude is, well, you need to you need to separate from your family, right? They're too enmeshed with you. They're too enabling. We need to help you set some boundaries with their family. And they kind of leave the family, they kind of marginalize the family a little bit and sort of leave them on their own trying to figure out what am I supposed to be doing here? And I'm not saying it's all programs, but unfortunately, too many programs are not supporting the family. And so Anna and I realized, that a lot of our experience and expertise really um, was, was going to help these families because they need to know what, what do they need to be doing, right? Yes, it's about trying to help their loved one, but it's also about trying to help that entire family system you know, find new ways of, of, of interacting with each other, more healthy ways of, of solving problems together and, and moving forward. And so I think my experience working with teens and young adults at South Miami and Suburban and, and early on in my career has really 
helped me get to a place where I understand the importance of the family. And again, it doesn't matter whether I'm working, whether I'm working with a teen or a young adult or, or an older adult, not including that family just does such a disservice to everybody. And it, you know, it, it makes it less likely that the, that the client or the patient is going to be successful. So I think that's the biggest thing I learned throughout all those years. And unfortunately, um, a lot of clinicians that I see, um, don't really know how to do that. They don't know how to navigate and, and include and, and, um, utilize the family strengths to help that whole system move forward. And so that's where we come in, right? And I think we can be a real service to the families that hire us, but we can also be a real service to the programs that are working with these individuals and families because we sort of bridge that gap in, in a lot of ways. In my own experience, I found that the issues with families, the, sub, the person with the substance use disorder that's in treatment is the identified patient. However, the issues with the families, you find when you dig in there and you take a look at what's going on, it's often the person with the substance use disorder is not the person in the family system with the greatest pathology. Heavy yes. codependence, mental health issues, control, personality disorders, all these kinds of things. And a lot of times, family members' best attempt to nurture their loved one or help them or assist them actually reinforces the disease process itself. It's true. Often in the worst ways. It's true. And you know, um, you know, families that they, they, they mean well, right? They, they love their son or their daughter or their husband or their wife or whomever it is they're concerned about. And they're doing their best to try to help and, and alleviate the problem. Um, I don't even like to use the word enabling before. And actually it was, um, Judith Landau in, in one of um, her trainings that, that I took, you know, she used the word protection, you know, families protect, they're not enabling. Enabling has a very negative connotation, right? They're doing what they know how to do. And in the arise model, you're, you're really looking toward that family's strengths. The family has strengths. They are resilient. They have been dealing with this problem in some cases for decades and they've survived. And so you really want to tap into what they've done right. Yes, you want to help them make adjustments. You want to help them, you know, try some different things, maybe maybe do some things they've never done before. But you want to capitalize on the strengths because they are there. And you want to realize that all they want to do is help. So when we marginalize them, when we put them off to the side and we say, you're an enabler, you, you need to be, we need to set boundaries with you. The client needs to set boundaries, but we are really um, disabling the, the, the power of that family. And, and we're, we're really decreasing the, the positive outcomes when we don't teach that family to utilize their strengths and, and, and then learn how to do some things differently as well. So it's, it's, it's more of a positive based approach rather than looking at everything the family's done wrong and trying to get them to do it differently. And that has worked really well. And families, they like to be acknowledged that, you know, we've done some things right. I mean, you've survived this chaos, this self-destructive pattern that's affected all of you. Somehow you've survived that. And we want to, um, we want to reinforce those, those survival techniques they've, they've developed, but we also want to help them be more effective. I think you're right. I think sometimes identifying a family member as an enabler, it actually does the opposite of what you hope it would do. Because if you push that person off to the side, their natural protective instincts are going to come out. 100%. And if the, the person, the client, you know, is experiencing something, if they're being challenged in treatment and they don't like it, or there's a pocket of resistance, or they want to leave, and they contact that, quote, 
enabling family member who's been marginalized and pushed off to the side. Yes. They're going to bond in some kind of protective dynamic and that's going to alienate the treatment providers. They these people already the family and the substance abuser already have a a long history of being together. Treatment providers and people that are working with the family, they're we're newcomers to the system. That's correct. And if you don't do what needs to be done to build trust and to encourage these people and to make them feel safe working with you, we lose them. That's so true, Eric. I mean, you know, think think about the mother of a of a young adult, let's say a young adult young man. She's scared. She's anxious. Her son's in treatment. She's not able to speak to him on a regular basis. She's, you know, on the outside, if you will. Some programs do a better job than others than, you know, of including her in that process. But but her anxiety level is 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 increasing. The more we marginalize her, the less we communicate, the less we include her, the more anxiety she's going to feel and the more she's going to try to try to engage and be protective and 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 unfortunately possibly interfere in the treatment process so to me as the interventionist or the consultant that's working with a family but also you know liaisoning with the treatment program um my job is to is to bridge that gap and and to be that communication line to the family so that they can relax so they can feel secure and so they can focus on their own healing while their son their daughter whoever it is that they have in treatment is is also um recovering right and so my my job is to just reinforce that for a treatment provider i'm a believer that you can never communicate enough that that you know that there's there's not too much communication and that the more we communicate the more we empower families by giving them the information the better position they are in to support their loved one absolutely because they're going to be tested yeah and at some point their loved one in a treatment center is going to utter the magic words the help that you are paying for, the treatment that you are paying for is actually hurting me. And get me out of here. These people are starving me to yes. death. <laughs> and, and when that happens, we, these people need support because it's going to be very difficult for them not to react to that, not to want to protect and rescue and do all these that's things. That's right. That's right. And that's where um, we come in, right? As, as the consulting um, interventionists or therapeutic consultants, um, we're there to walk through that process with those families so that when that happens, we're there to support them. We're there to reinforce. We're there to make sure they're getting the communication that they need. And we're helping them not fall back into some of those old patterns that weren't working terribly well and helping them actually capitalize on some of the things that that they were doing that that were really good and helpful um and i think that's so important because unfortunately as you said before families are lost you know they 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 don't know how to handle these things always in the best way and sometimes the you know and especially now i will tell you here's another thing that that i think has affected um with covid um treatment programs unfortunately have more clients than they've ever had before and to be honest, like a lot of other industries, they have less staff than they've had before. And so they're overwhelmed. They're, you know, a lot of them are just trying to stay above water and working with the clients. And, and a lot of times they're just not able to give the family the support that they really need. It's interesting. And one of the things I'd like you to speak to is there's, like you had said before, there's massive differentiation in the way different programs engage family members. Talk a little bit about what separates good family engagement from bad family engagement and how systemically some of the better programs do a better job at this. So this is a great question. And and I will say that I'm kind of a hybrid in that in my career, I have floated between the addiction treatment world, right? The more traditional addiction treatment programs and what we call the educational and therapeutic consulting world. 
And the educational therapeutic consulting world consists of programs that, you know, programs like residential treatment centers, wilderness programs, um, therapeutic boarding schools that have focused more on younger clients, right? Teenagers, young adults. Um, and and that, um, that industry, if you will, has understood and they work with consultants. It's a very consultant-driven. Um, consultants typically work with a family like we do. They refer that client to a program. Those programs are very accustomed to working with consultants. They understand the value of that relationship. But because they work primarily with younger younger clients, they understand the importance of engaging the family. These are parents, parents of a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, a 22-year-old. And they understand how important it is to include that family in the process. So to me, the educational consulting side of things, those programs do a much better job at educating families, including them in treatment, preparing them from the very beginning. And I mean something like from the point of admission, you know, the communication starts with that family and they're included in every step of the way. They don't just have a a weekend, right, during a 30-day treatment that a lot of addiction treatment programs have where the family can come and participate in, in some sort of educational seminar. They are getting communication from the the program from the therapist from day one it's it's regular it's consistent it's frequent there's lots of opportunities to engage the family they're actually giving the family homework assignments so that there's a parallel process right so that while they're working with that child or that young adult that 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 parent that family unit is also doing their own work i wish that addiction treatment programs the more traditional ones actually learned how to do that and some do it so i'm not i'm not trying to say that none none do it but unfortunately in a lot of addiction treatment programs you go in there's maybe a phone call every week a brief hey he's doing well she's doing well but families don't really feel like they they're engaged in the process. And um, I think we can learn from some of these programs that do it really well, where they're over communicating. They've learned that more communication is better. They're not taking that approach that, oh, Johnny's parents are enablers and he needs to learn how to set boundaries. And mom, she calls too much and we just, we just need to keep her out a little bit. They actually do the opposite of that. And it works really well. 100%. I think when we don't include family members in some ways, that actually contributes to the natural avoidant dynamics that you see in substance in families where there are substance use disorders, yes. where it's, okay, I'm going to go ahead and deposit my child into this program. You guys are going to fix them to me, and hopefully you'll get me back a better version of what we had, and we can kind of go back to what things were like when he was 12 and we didn't have these problems. Right. And a lot of times not doing the heavier lifting of engaging the family it contributes to that. So maybe the loved one is changing and making some some growth in treatment. They're learning some things. They're they're engaged in some kind of a, a change process or at yes. least at least contemplation, right? Pre-contemplation, contemplation. They're thinking about making significant changes in their lives. Correct. If the family doesn't change, they'll be going back to an environment that looks very much like the one they came from. So the changes likely to run into an extinction because you're still dealing with the same mom, the same dad, the same family system. That's right. I, I think that in every treatment program, there needs to be a, a, a clinical staff dedicated to the client, to the patient. There also needs to be a dedication to the family. There should be a family therapist that their sole job is to work with that family. There should be regular communication with the therapist who's working with the, the son or the daughter or whoever the loved one is and that family. 
updating them, involving them, answering their questions, educating them, letting them know what they could be doing differently. There really needs to be a team of people that are dedicated to that family. And unfortunately, a lot of programs, whether it be cost-driven or, or, or whatever, sometimes it's, it's even just in the culture, right? It's in our culture of how we feel about families. Um, and some of the attitudes that we've already talked about, but unfortunately they don't do enough for the families. And, um, and I think there's some programs out there that are doing really well with this and, and really understand this, but there's far too many that I think could be doing a lot more. Well, when you think about the setup of when someone goes out of state to a program, they travel to another place to go to treatment you can almost, it's almost sort of like set up in that dynamic that if there's not communication to the family from the program and they're, you know, kind of out of sight, out of mind because they're in a different state while the loved one is here in this state and the family is, you know, a thousand miles away somewhere else, it would be easy to kind of forget about them. And so it's true. I like what you said though, and I've seen the same thing when, a program has some form of systemic educational program and advocacy program for families, it's much better. Because a lot of times, historically, in these programs where there is no family program, the family will receive advice like, you guys should go to Al-Anon or something. And if there's no context for what Al-Anon is, you don't really understand why you're going there. Yes. And so if if you're not even being educated on what the concept of whether you believe in codependency or not, but what the concept actually is, or even, I know you don't like the use of the word enabling, if you're not even really clear about what that means, it says it's even worse. And the likelihood is a lot of these people aren't going to go to Al-Anon if you tell them to. And that's if they right. do go, it's hit or miss whether they go to a meeting that's going to connect with what their needs are or, you know, that connects with their belief system or that they feel comfortable in, in what they're getting or they identify with, with the people there. Yes. And that it is a big miss. So I, I actually think it's a cop out. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer in Al-Anon and other support groups for families, but I think a treatment program just kind of telling a family to go to Al-Anon is a cop-out. Really, it's them shirking their responsibility. Because if you think about it, would we tell the, the, the addicted individual who really is, you know, pretty advanced in their problem, would we tell them we'll just go to a meeting and that'll be enough? There's an, there's an old joke about that. And they say that uh, treatment is the place where you spend $50,000 to find out that meetings are free. But to your point, most people already know about the availability of something like Alcoholics Anonymous. Correct. And if they were the type of person that could find these things on their own and generate recovery through their own efforts, they probably would have done that by now. That's right. And while we're sitting around as family members waiting for them to figure out they need this help and go to AA meetings or do something on an outpatient basis. It's going to make a significant change. You're dealing with life or death there potentially. Yeah. We have to help that family understand, right? We have to move them through the stage, through the stages of change and help them through that. Just like we do the, 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 the person that we're, that we're treating. And it's because we we're treating the entire family, right? And if we view it that way, well, we have to help them understand what are the issues and, and why do we feel it's so important for them to go to Al-Anon? Hopefully they will, right? At some point, but they're not ready yet in, in, in most cases to understand what that even means and why it's important for them. I think that's our job as the consultants and as the treatment providers to help move that, you know, move the family through that process to where they can understand why that's so important for them. Well, the idea of family disease, that's not language that everybody knows. That's really like industry specific. It's something that providers are more familiar with, but lay people don't understand substance use disorder as a family disease. They think about it as something that happens to an individual. That's right. So most people, I think, are entering into this without any thought that there's something that we're doing or there's something that's going on with us that needs to be addressed. 
I remember when I was working at the Wellness Resource Center, uh, Sharon Carter at that time functioned as the family therapist. She was also one of the owners. So it was good that she was a family therapist in that position because she had a lot of influence on the program itself. So, you know, advocacy for family was, was a priority. Sure. And I remember she said to me, she said, these people need to recognize that they now have a condition that is separate from their loved one's condition. They have their own set of issues surrounding what could be their their loved one's substance use disorder, but it's this other problems that they have, whether you call it codependency or dependency or something else, it's now their own thing. And when you think about what it's like for family members who have lived in hypervigilance for years, like you said, surviving, trying to find, managing, protecting uh, throughout that experience, it's almost like a form of PTSD. 100%. I think a lot of them actually have that. 100%. They've experienced trauma because a lot of the things that go on, overdoses, arrests, uh, going to the hospital, all these things, these are things that they can recall vividly, but their loved one, the substance use, the person with the substance use disorder who was under the influence when these things occurred, they may not even really remember these things. That's right. And when they were in a car accident that threatened their life and they woke up three days later in the hospital or whatever. That's they, correct. They weren't conscious for a lot of that. Family members, they remember all of it. That's right. Uh, we had a client some years ago. Um, it was actually, um, I think it was when we had um, FRS, our outpatient program, but I think it was Anna's client. But we had this young adult that overdosed on heroin and was in a coma for, if I remember correctly, it was like a month or longer in a coma and um when he finally awoke from the coma and, and he's fine or he was fine after that he had no recollection of of any of that period of time so he really he he really couldn't appreciate right but um i remember his mother actually um took like a video diary of the whole thing the whole process, right, of what what the family had been through, and I will tell you that that family had 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 been through trauma, and just because he couldn't remember what had happened to him, that family was completely traumatized, terrified, and it was you know sadly um, it wasn't long after that experience that he actually relapsed and, and went back to drugs, and imagine the PTSD that that mother, that father, that family must have experienced as he was moving back towards active addiction because of everything they had experienced that he had no recollection of. So when you say that family members um, are suffering from PTSD, I think that's absolutely true. And then, and then we, you know, we, we criticize them then for the way they're responding and we say you're 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 too enmeshed you're you're too enabling you're too anxious you're too this you're too that and we, what we what we forget sometimes is that they are having a classic trauma response absolutely i didn't hear from these people from the treatment center for a week something bad might be happening absolutely because the last time i was trying to get in touch with my son and didn't hear from him for a week he was in the hospital or he was in jail or that's right so the absence of information could be really anxiety provoking. So important. And I think we forget that sometimes. And then helping people to manage. I think a lot of times family members have difficulty managing when things are going well. Yes. Because even when things are going well, they're waiting for the for the shoe to drop, right? Because, oh my God, things are going too well. I've been here before and I know the bottom eventually falls out. Again, a trauma response, always anticipating what the next crisis or tragedy is going to be in that heightened state of anxiety that, that, that you talked about. Gotcha. So I've noticed this kind of evolving with interventionists over time. Back earlier in my career, my first job in treatment was like 1995, and back then, if I was working with an interventionist, it usually was the kind of thing where the interventionist came in, did the intervention, got the client to treatment, 
and then they were kind of out. Over time, I've noticed that the interventionists kind of hang around. They're working with families and things like that over time. And that process seems to have evolved. And I think speaking to the Arise model, now there's a model for how that engagement works. Yes. um, A sophisticated one. That's right. And as I hear you talk about it and talking about the needs of families, clearly you're working with people for extended periods of time beyond getting someone into treatment. That's correct. I mean, and and um, we typically will, will sign on with a family for six months, a year, right? Sometimes even longer because we understand what that recovery process looks like for the individual and for the family. And so, yes, we're there to help them prepare to hopefully get their loved one the help that they need, get them into a program. And then we become an extension of the treatment team, right? And and we liaison with the program and we become that bridge from the program to the family. We continue to support that family. We help the individual and the family then look at what does aftercare look like for this individual what are they going to need when they return home or maybe they they don't return home maybe they need some sort of a secondary program but we walk through that process over the long term because we know from experience that families need that long-term support right so it's the inner it's the preparation for the intervention it's the intervention and then it's the case management the crisis management that that is more long-term and um, Arise model, again, does does that and incorporates that into the way they help families. So do other models of intervention. And, and, and I think one thing that makes us different, um, there's a lot of interventionists out there that have had minimal training in, in, in sort of what, I mean, there's really no, anyone can call themselves an interventionist. Unfortunately, it's not, it's, it's not like there's a license to, to, to be an interventionist. Um, so the difference with us is we're clinicians and we've been clinicians for many years. So everything we do is, is driven by our experience as clinicians. That's a very interesting distinction. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Because I think sometimes some of the skepticism, again, it's it's an evolving model, but there's massive differentiation in the types of interventionists that are out there and the kinds of training that they have and what they're doing. You and Anna, both experienced people, both experienced clinicians trained in a, a multitude of disciplines, right? Yes. Um, but not everybody has that. So when you're talking about people engaging family members and helping them make crucial decisions, criticizing their decisions, providing them guidance, if you're not really well-informed and self-aware, you do some harm. You really can. And, and I've seen it happen. Um, you know, I've been brought into cases where I had to clean up a, a mess that was left by an interventionist that that really did not have the experience or the expertise to, you, you know, to, to be doing what, what they were doing. And, and unfortunately, as I said before, you can go out and take a, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 hour course and call yourself an interventionist. You don't even have to take the course, right? You could be a, a person who's new in recovery, went to treatment yourself. And, and decide you want to help people and, and you're going to call yourself an interventionist. Thankfully, that's changed a good bit. We do have a certification now. It's, a, it's out of the state of Pennsylvania. There's a Pennsylvania certification board that actually provides a certified intervention professional credential, which I have, Anna has, many others have. But I really think that... Um, for me, the interventionists that are out there that are doing really good work are, are, you know, tend to be clinicians. You know, they tend to have had a career before in, in working in treatment or, you know, being a licensed clinician. Um, because I think when you're dealing with complex mental health issues, when you're dealing with some of the, you know, more complicated family systems, you know, things that, that we deal with. I mean, you know, the, the days of working with a guy who is quote unquote, just an alcoholic, right? I I don't even know what that means, but, um, you know, you know, the treatment and, and, and people's issues are very complicated and to go in there without the experience, without the training and guiding people, in really what is a life and death situation for a lot of them, 
I've just seen it turn out really badly. Again, thankfully, the, the, the field is evolving and we are seeing people with, with more training, more education, and there's a lot of great interventionists out there that do incredible work. But you really do have to be careful because, um, like you said, not, not everybody's experience and training and expertise is equal. And, and, but families don't know this, right? When, when they're jumping on the internet and they go, I need help. I need an interventionist. And, and they Google interventions. They get a, you know, a wide variety of people who call themselves interventionists. And some may be qualified to do the work that they're doing. And, and often many are not. He looks a little young, but the website was great. Yeah. The website looks good. The website was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, um, and, and I actually, because of that, um, I don't tend to use, um, I don't tend to call myself an interventionist as much as I do a therapeutic consultant. I think that captures more. I call myself a therapeutic consultant who has intervention skills because I think that really describes someone with therapeutic training. And I really believe that as an interventionist or an educational or therapeutic consultant, you really do need to, you need to know what you're doing because people's lives are in your hands. And um, having had to go into some cases before where someone really created a mess or having to pull someone out of a program where they didn't belong, where they weren't getting their needs met and, and put them somewhere else, I've seen the harm that can be done. Yeah, that's a big one, too. And I think the other thing is, if you're the person that's guiding the family and they're expending resources to help their loved one, these programs can be very expensive. Yep. And for a lot of people, they're only, they only have the resources to do this one time, or, yes. you know, one or two times, one shot at this. Correct. So you guide someone, someone gets the wrong guidance, put their loved one in the wrong program. That's a huge loss financially, and they just may not be able to get another opportunity to do this. So I think the guidance is the quality of guidance and who you're working with on that level, who's consulting with you is pretty important. And I think, as I said before, I think that's where the value comes when you're, when you, um, engage a consultant or an interventionist to help you is they really can minimize the risk that something like that. They, they can really help you avoid some of the mistakes that families make when they don't have this, this level of direction and guidance. And unfortunately, when you go on the internet and you say you search for treatment program and the website looks really good and you see it's in Florida and there's palm trees, right? And you call them up, of course they're going to tell you that we can help you. We're the best at helping with this particular issue, right? But we don't work for programs. We work only for the family that hires us. So we don't have any investment in any particular program other than which program is going to have the best chance at helping this person get better. And that's really important because, again, just like not any, not every interventionist is equal, not every treatment program is equal either. And one treatment program may be really good at dealing with one issue and not so good at dealing with another, which is why when people call me up sometimes and, and they just want me to have a conversation with them and they want me to give them the name of a program for their son, I, I always say, you know, I'm sorry, but um, it's more complicated than that. And I really need to understand your son and I really need to do a a, a thorough assessment because not every program is equipped to deal with certain issues. So it really becomes about matching a person's needs to the right resources and the right programs. So you had mentioned that when you're working with families, you generally you'll contract with them for six months for a year Tell me a little bit more about what that looks like, how that works. 
Well, um, you know, a family will call us up and they'll say, look, we're concerned about our daughter. She's got mental health issues. She's uh, She suffers with bipolar disorder. She has a drug problem as well. We'll do a, an initial consultation with a family to try to understand what the problem is in more general terms, um, what the family has done up to that point to try to help the situation, what's worked, what's not worked. And then we will talk to them about what we do and how we can be helpful and and will really um, help them understand what the process of intervention looks like. Um, you know, we'll do a more thorough um, assessment of the individual and the family if they end up hiring us. And often they do, right? Because they understand at that point, hopefully, the benefits and what we can bring to the table for them. And, and essentially, our work begins at that point. We begin understanding what this family's goals are, what they're looking for, what their loved one is suffering with, what's worked, what's not worked. And we begin to formulate laid a plan for them over the long term. And it's about preparing them for the actual intervention or or for the um, the placement because sometimes the individual that they're trying to help is is actually wanting help and 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 willing to get help and at that point it's not so much about an intervention but it's about finding the right kind of help for that person because oftentimes they've been through treatment before and they feel it hasn't worked for whatever reason. And so sometimes it involves us saying, you know, um, this person's been to treatment three or four times. Something's not working. Are we missing something? And sometimes it's about recommending, you know, maybe we want to get a thorough battery of psychological testing. Maybe we want to find out if there's other underlying issues that are contributing to this person's, you know, continued relapse. It still amazes me today how many addiction treatment programs and even more mental health focused programs are not utilizing psychological testing to really assess people and to understand what's going on. Um, so, so we, we come in and help them figure out what is our next step. And like I said before, we do contract with them over the long term. So we're there to get that person into treatment. It may be a program. It may be outpatient treatment. It may be they need psychological testing. It can be a variety of things. It's usually going to be a multi-step process. It's, it's, it, it, you know, it, it kind of happens in phases, which is why, again, it's so important for us to, to sign on over the long term, because we know that sometimes help comes in, in, in different steps or stages. So, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll be there to walk through that process with the family. We don't always have the answers of, of what someone needs to do. But our our role, as I see it, is to help that family find the answers. Sometimes it'll be, look, uh, we don't think you're ready to go to a program yet. We, we, want, we want you to go somewhere and be assessed first. We want you to go to a short-term assessment center so we can really understand what the issues are and we can have a multidisciplinary team of, of professionals help us develop that treatment plan. Because I don't know, I don't know what's going on with your son or daughter. I don't know necessarily why he or she has needed to go to three or four treatment centers in the last four years, but we need to figure it out because we don't want to keep going through that revolving door. Such a variability in the presentation of cases, right? Huge. When people are actively using substances, very hard to accurately diagnose them. So someone starts to get clean in a program, like you said, what are the diagnostic tools that are going to be utilized? Are we doing psychological testing? Are we doing brain mapping? What is underlying? Are we talking about personality disorders, other mental health conditions? We talk about learning disabilities, traumatic brain injuries, all of these different potentially impactful conditions that people have. Yes. And more comprehensive programs that engage in more specific diagnostic tools are, are, are going to get us better answers, right? Over the 100%. Long and then if you're on the other end of that, working with the families and can help them to interpret what that information needs, you're going to be in a position to provide them with guidance 
about forecasting what this is going to look like over the long haul and anticipate what the needs are going to be in the future? Is this someone who's going to need individual therapy for aftercare? Is this someone who's going to be needing trauma therapy? Is this someone who needs transitional housing? How long would they be there? That's right. At what point would you engage in education, things like that? You mean a better position to help the family members guide those kinds of decisions. That's right. And, and you know, and sometimes the treatment programs do a decent job of that and sometimes they don't, right? They just make a recommendation and they let, let you know, the family's kind of left to their own devices to figure it out. Well, like you said, we're there to help interpret all the information and then help that family develop a plan over the long term. I, I remember a case about a year ago, a young adult female and and you know the 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 parents um, brought her to me and she had trauma she had been sexually abused she had an addiction to marijuana she was um she was very i think she had a diagnosis of like social anxiety or something but she was very difficult to engage in treatment and um and so it took a while, but eventually we, we got this young lady to a treatment program. And after we were kind of all scratching our heads, wondering what was going on with this young woman, um, we knew she had trauma. We knew she had a marijuana dependency. We knew there was anxiety there. Um, we, we, had, we recommended that there be a full battery of testing done. And um, you know she was at that point, I think, 20 or 21 years old. And the testing showed that she was on the autism spectrum. No one had ever picked that up. And so we're wondering why she's not engaging in group therapy and why she's having trouble expressing herself and why she's not making real, you know, strong peer relationships in the, in the treatment program. And everyone's just thinking that she's socially anxious, right? It turns out she's, she's, she's on the autism spectrum. And that totally like changed and started to help us understand what she was going to need more long term. Had we not done that testing, she would have kept revolving through treatment programs and no one would have ever figured out why she wasn't really engaging and why traditional trauma therapy wasn't really working for her. And that, you know, th these are the puzzles, right? That we have to figure out. That is a more recent phenomenon where it was what they used to call Asperger's. And on the more mild end of the spectrum, when you're dealing with substance use disorders, you're dealing with mental health, you easily mask that. Yes. So you have this person who's coming into this really engaging treatment environment where they're expected to engage with therapists and relationship build with their peers. And they have this kind of disorder that makes it very challenging to manage, you know, to interpret social cues, to form relationships yes. with people. They can't do it. All the things that people need to do to be successful in, in recovery. And in traditional therapy. That's it's right. It's subtle. So it looks like something else. It looks like you're That's dealing right. with, with someone who's maybe like a really just a resistant patient or, or doesn't want it bad enough or something. Or someone who really, because I mean, if you think about it, it could look like a, a trauma patient, someone who's really experienced trauma and, and just can't, can't verbalize and express how they're feeling. Right. Um, but it wasn't, it was, it was something else. And it really, it really helped us, you know, create a more effective treatment plan for her today she's actually getting help and she's been in long-term aftercare treatment that incorporates you know the, the 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 components of working with someone who has those those challenges right but but had someone not said i think we need to do a you know a full evaluation here because i feel like we're missing something she would have just continued on the path of, of going to treatment center after treatment center with people doing exactly what you just said a minute ago. She's not really engaged. She doesn't really want it. You know, we would have blamed her for something that was clearly nothing that, that is her fault. Yeah. No, I think that that happens. So again, comprehensive batteries, guidance, yes. and a little bit of external consultation to get that feedback, always helpful. Yes, yes, absolutely. So if somebody wanted to engage with RNA therapeutic partners, if they 
wanted to work with you guys. How how does that happen? How do we get in touch with with uh, well, Ray Estefani e- and Anna Moreno? Easy to get us. Um, you know, we're on the web. You can Google RNA Therapeutic Partners. Um, you can give us a call directly. Um, we are available by telephone. We're available by text. We're available by email. So if you just go to RNA Therapeutic Partners website, you will find all of our contact information there. We respond quickly. Um, you know, you set up a consultation with us. You set up an evaluation, and 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 we really evaluate for you um, what the issues are and uh, whether or not we're the we're the right help for you. I mean, we're we're not always the right help, and so when we feel like there's someone out there that's better to help a family, we have a wide network of people all across the country, even internationally. And so, if we're not the best solution for you, we're going to help you find the best solution. So, you know, we do offer um, psychotherapy, you know, we now are offering customized outpatient treatment programs for individuals suffering with mental health issues, substance issues. We do interventions as we've been discussing um, during the last hour. We do educational and therapeutic consulting. We do crisis and case uh, management. So we have a wide variety of things we do. There are things we certainly don't do, right? And there are there are areas that we are not experts in, but we know a lot of those people. I will tell you that personally, you know, I'm not an expert in eating disorders. I work with people who who suffer with eating disorders, usually co-occurring with, with other things that, that we may be helping with. But we know lots of people in the community who are experts in eating disorders. And so again, our role for families is not always, we're not always the solution, but we are helping families find the solution. And so that's really, um, I think, where our value comes in. If we can't help, we likely know someone out there that can help, and we help families develop that roadmap that hopefully leads to a solution. Got it. Well, Ray, I'm... I could talk to you here about these things for hours and there's so much more to cover and maybe we'll get you back in here another day. I know you had a hard stop for 1230. I want to try to respect that. I know you got things going on today. So thank you again for coming in here and meeting with me at the Good Counsel podcast. You know, we got a lot of big things going on here with, I think we're up to like four subscribers, including my dad and some of his friends from (laughs) Century Village. A lot of big things going on over here. So, but uh, I really appreciate you coming in. I really uh, appreciate you having me, Eric, and um, good luck with the podcast, and I can't wait to hear it. Thank you. Thank you.